Welcome back to the Enjoy the Walk podcast, and we have an awesome guest joining us from Charlotte, North Carolina this week. Her name is Jennifer Arrington. By day, she is a lawyer, and after her nine to five and then some is over, she likes to hit the links, and uh, you can also find her on Instagram at birdiegirl underscore fit, kind of how we met and crossed paths, um, just enjoying the game and scrolling and uh, struck up a conversation and realized she had a pretty awesome story to tell. So, uh, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us this week. How are you? Yeah, good. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, I, you know, we always like to start off our, our episodes by just kind of learning a little about where you came from and uh, what home course you're at and uh, kind of how you got into the game of golf. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm originally from Charlotte, North Carolina, and I grew up, was fortunate enough to grow up on a golf course. So uh, TPC Piper Glen is kind of my home course. That's where I learned to pick up the game, play a lot with my dad. Um, so that's kind of where I got started. And like you said, I'm a lawyer, so very busy during the day. And then kind of when I have some free time and when I can make time, definitely a huge, huge golf fan. So uh, the first tee is basically, it's a nonprofit organization for uh, students, kids from three, four, five through high school. And they offer different programs. Uh, depending on your age, depending on your skill, and it can be a weekend program, it can be a week-long program, it can be a summer program, and so my involvement is I'm a coach and a volunteer, so sometimes on the weekends I'll go out and participate in weekend leagues. I uh, like age is usually about 7 to 10, 7 to 11, um, and we just help. We help them hit, and they learn chipping, driving, putting. Uh, first, it kind of stands for having and growing awareness of the game as well as qualities of respect, confidence, really kind of instilling some core values in these kids as they're growing up and learning the game. Qualities obviously that will apply directly to the game as well as life skills. So uh, my involvement essentially is I'm a coach and a volunteer and I work with, you know, work one-on-one with the kids who come out for the leagues. That's awesome. Now, what kind of size of, um, from what I've always understood, Charlotte, the greater Charlotte area is sort of a very metropolitan growing uh, area. How how large is your first tee itself? Like how many kids do you guys kind of see? And is it normally like a class schedule or, you know, do you guys meet like once or twice a a month or how do you really run the first tee in that aspect? And how many kids do you usually get to see within like a, a monthly basis? So first tee, Greater Charlotte has a couple different courses that we work with. Uh, Charles Sifford, we have Springfield. So we actually go North and South Carolina. So Charlotte's right on the border between North and South Carolina. So we can kind of go into Fort Mill as well. So there's about four or five courses and locations that the first tee of Greater Charlotte works with. And then at each location, that's broken down into different programs. So for instance, uh, the Charles Sifford, the Revolutionary Park uh, location that I work at in Charlotte, probably 100, 200 kids. And on any given Saturday in the morning, might be 20 to 40, 50, somewhere around there. We'll have different stations. So when I'm actually on site working a Saturday morning, I'll be working a group of students and kids who are maybe 10, 12. So the ratio is great. It's, um, it's, they, they staff enough coaches and volunteers with the kids. So it's, you can spend one-on-one time um, you know, with, each, with each child. So that's pretty cool. 
And then it runs year long. So it depends kind of on school year or during the summer. Summer is obviously more intensive during the day. School year, you're going to have programs more after school or on the weekends. And like I said, they have PAR, Eagle, uh, birdie groups, depending on the skill level, depending on the age. So it, it's really, you can kind of customize it to what fits the student's schedule the best. And then just the volunteers, whatever time we have available or we can make available, we'll sign up for a program. And uh, usually it's weekly. Sure. No, that's awesome. So uh, you kind of touched on a little bit of like the, those nine core values that, that the first T uh, really likes to teach and, and stuff like that. So what, what's one of those nine core values that you really see resonating the most between the, between the kids and something that they pick up? you know, maybe on the first time they ever come or something that they just, they, they will forever take away the most out of, out of what you do with the work at the first tee. Yeah. I think of all the values, I mean, they're all equally important, but I think confidence is extremely important. Um, you know, golf is not, it's not a team sport. It's not like you can go out there and if you mess up or if you hit a bad shot or if you miss a basket, you can kind of rely on somebody else to come back and help you out. I mean, it's just, it's you and your golf ball and that's it. So I think from that aspect, it's really interesting to kind of start instilling early that you have to believe in yourself. You have to have that confidence. And you know, if you hit a bad shot to be able to rebuild it and rebound, so to speak, and come back and get right back in the game. So I think that of all the values, I, I, I definitely like confidence the most. That's something that I, you know, that I work on all the time for sure. Absolutely. And I think that can be like taken on and off the golf course so quickly, whether you're in a business meeting and, and have to give a presentation that, you know, is a, is a big one for your company and you got to muster up the courage and the confidence to, to really nail down this, this presentation. And then um, we've, we've talked about it in this podcast. It seems like a lot uh, the word confidence and just talking about um, amateurs and their, and their play of hoping to break 90 or break 80 and getting the confidence to do that. But then also the guys on tour, we even, uh, Dante and I had, you know, had mentioned last week with Abraham answer, uh, taking on tiger at the president's cup and the confidence that takes to, to stare down, you know, one of the world's best, uh, that, that's a, that's a pretty great, pretty great word to choose and, and to have as a, as a key uh, element in the first tee. Absolutely. Michael McDonald spent some time in the New York area before relocating down to Charleston, South Carolina. Um, he is the founder of the Golf Movement Academy, uh, trains golfers specifically online to increase mobility and play pain-free golf. So, Mike, without further ado, thanks for joining us this week. Dalton, what's up, guys? Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. Now, as we, as we kind of talked before, you know – it's a theme that seems to be ever present right now in the golfing world, whether it's amateurs or pros is just becoming more athletic. We want to be strong. Being strong is good, right? So lifting weights is yes, we, we want that. And I'm all for that. But I think, like you said, you don't want to get to the point where it's a restriction or a limitation to what you can do with the golf swing. So when we look at the philosophy of TPI and just the assessment process, what we're going to look at is the connection between the body and the swing, because you can't do something in your golf swing that you physically can't do, right? I think that's the, the first foundation building block. And a lot of times people that have been playing the game for their whole lives, they might have that natural ability. You can separate your hips really easy. You might be able to do some of those things that other people haven't been able to do. So everything starts off with an assessment first and foremost. From there, once we have the 
information about how someone moves, then we dive into mobility. Mobility always has to come first because you need the range of motion in order to create stability, strength, and power. You can't do those things if you don't have range of motion. So I don't expect everyone to sit there and be able to rotate like Dustin Johnson. Okay, that's not plausible. But at the same time, if we can take somebody and say, hey, you know what, we're going to attack some hip mobility and work on that hip internal rotation so you can clear your hips through impact more. Or we're going to we're going to focus on your upper body rotation, right? Your thoracic spine, which is going to help that takeaway as opposed to having those guys just kind of sway off the ball. Those little changes and putting a little bit more focus on some movements in the gym that they may have never done before make a huge difference into the actual swing themselves. Once we've established that baseline with, hey, this is what we need to work on, here are some mobility drills that we can give you to get you swinging better, then we stabilize, we strengthen, and then we add power. It's like a pyramid, basically, of training. And if you don't have that bottom layer of just foundational mobility and just movement, your, your fancy stuff, your speed, your plyometrics, your you know, med ball throws, all that, all that fancy stuff that you see on social media, that's not going to really be there or put it this way, you're not going to be able to maximize that stuff unless you have that prerequisite stuff in the beginning. So again, a, a lot of my focus with my guys is getting them moving better, some mobility drills, putting them in a position so that they're, when they step up to the first tee or they put the golf club in their hand, they're like, oh, okay, I feel, a little bit, I, you know, I feel a little bit better. But So that's, that's definitely the huge component. But like I said in the very beginning, we're going to deadlift, we're going to squat, we're going to push, we're going to pull, we're going to, we're going to lift heavy weight as long as you can do so properly, as long as your form dictates that you can, and based off of the assessment that you're physically able to do those things. I love that. And it's, it's funny that like a lot of the maybe older generation golf analysts and, and talking heads have really taken a, um, a fighting stance on, on the Brooks Kepkas and Rory McIlroy's out there that are really busting out some, you know, some weights, some serious weights, like you said, like deadlifting and squatting and they're putting up, you know, mid three hundreds, even close to 400 pounds. And it's like, but they're excelling at the top level because they're doing it right. And they're doing it, you know, within their limitations and they've worked over a decade to get their bodies in a position to be able to do that. So they're not just stepping in and, you know, trying to do this from a point of, Oh, I just started lifting, you know, a month ago and now I'm going to try and just put up the heaviest amount possible. They've, they've done it over a long period of time under the proper stretching afterwards and beforehand as well. So um, I, I love to hear that. And I think a lot of people will love to hear that, you know, just because you golf doesn't mean you, you have to lay off the weights. It's actually, you can do more of it if you're doing it right. Oh, 100%. And, and golf certainly has lagged behind in times for fitness and Tiger obviously changed that back in the day, but, and he'll be the first one to tell you, Tiger, did stuff he was not supposed to do right in the very <laughs> beginning. He hurt himself. We all know the stories, right? That's not what you should be doing. Now we're finally getting to the point where the top players in the world are not only addressing their fitness, but it is an absolute priority. So yes, with Brooks and with Rory and Justin Rose and Justin Thomas and Ricky guys, they're doing things the way that they're supposed to. Um, they have teams around them. They travel with their guys, right? Fitness is clearly a part of the game at the highest level. But now we're finally getting to the point where it's starting to disseminate itself down the ranks. So top-level amateur golf, collegiate golf, right? Even big-time junior play, some of my junior guys, right? If you're, if you're not implementing a well-structured fitness program basically all year round, because that's what golf is now, mm -hmm. you're, you're going to lag behind. And yes, you see stuff like Brooks, you know, I was actually, I was interviewed for a podcast 
the day after he put up that bench press video before the U.S. <laughs> Open, right? So I got asked all about that. And I might not agree with everything Brooks does in the gym, right? Um, you can't argue that it's been successful for him. And I think part of it's also a bit of an e ego thing for Brooks, like just being like the big strong dude, right? Um, but it's clearly working for him. But you look at guys like Rory and, and Justin Rose, like I said, like they're doing really what they're supposed to be doing. And I think some of the people in the golf space may have come out and said some things early on that are slowly getting more informed about what we do. And they're like, oh, okay, this is going to help guys. This is going to help guys like Phil swing 120 miles an hour at 50 years old because he's embraced TPI training. That's literally what he's been doing, right? So uh, we're getting there. We're still lagging behind a tiny, tiny bit. But um, the thing that I like to tell people is this is happening at the highest levels in the game, no doubt about it. So you need to be doing those things too, right? Why wouldn't you be implementing some of the strategies that the best players in the world are? Absolutely. And you referenced again, the TPI. So for, for those that maybe don't know or aren't fully aware of what that system or, you know, what that all entails, run us through a kind of a, a brief overview of what TPI is and, and how people have really benefited over the last few years from it. Yes. So Dr. Greg Rose and Dave Phillips started TPI, Titleist Performance Institute, um, based out of California. And again, like I said, they're, they're the governing body. They are the, the first ones to come out and say, okay, here's the data and here's what we look at in terms of how the body and the swing are connected. So the philosophy that we use as trainers is to go through an assessment. So there is a preset list of drills that we take our clients through, which is something where if I'm taking you guys, if you guys come over for a session, if I take an online client from Australia or if Tiger Woods walks in my front door, it's, it's the same assessment, right? Um, and that's the beauty of it. It gives you the same information based upon how the joints <coughs> in the body move. Excuse me. So from that perspective, the whole point is to analyze those movements, see where the restrictions are, and then correlate those to the golf swing. So I'll give like one quick example, right? If you're trying to shallow out your club on the downswing, let's say you're working with a swing instructor, right? You want to get more shallow. The action needed to, to do that is what we call shoulder external rotation, right? To be able to drop the club in the slot. If you don't, if you can't do that physically, if you don't have range of motion to do that, you're going to compensate in your golf swing. So as opposed to dropping that club in the slot, you might come over the top and it might look like, oh, the swing instructor is like, no, I need you to do this. I need you to do that. Well, you can't do it because you don't know how to do it physically. So my job is to sit there and say, here's how you can move. Here are the limitations. Here are the restrictions. Now here's all the training to make it better. I'm never going to tell somebody how to swing a club. I am not a swing instructor, right? I look at movement and that's the beauty of TPI because there's also, there's a fitness track, there's a medical track and there's a golf track. So it basically builds a team around the players. So me as the fitness guy, I'm communicating with my players, swing coaches based upon the things that they're doing. And it's, that's when the beauty of it really comes into play when you have a well-rounded team approach. So that's how we look at things from a TPI perspective, but all of that doesn't change the fact that the body is meant to move in a certain way, right? So we need to train it that way. And that goes back to what we talked about before training, overall movements and not certain muscle groups and things like that. And you notice that with um, players now, a lot of them are like Rory Tiger. They've really started jumping into getting into uh, physical fitness. Mm -hmm. But if you could recommend an age for players to start getting into TPI, start working out the right way, what would you say would be the right age range for 
men or women to really start focusing on their physical fitness if they want to, you know, excel in, in golf and, you know, all other areas of life? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, just to backtrack on that for a second, I am a big proponent of not specializing in something super young from a sport perspective, be an athlete, right? Do it. And Dalton, you said this in the intro, right? Be an athlete, do as play as many sports as you can get yourself accustomed to doing as many things as you can. And then if you're a stud or if you want to really specialize in something, be my guest. If I had to put an age on that, I mean, there's nothing wrong with kids that are 12, 13, 14 years old, starting to work out and starting to lift weights properly again with that foundation of how their body's supposed to move and that's that's a tough time frame for kids because half of them are in that gawky stage anyway at that time but um you know if you're if you're 15 16 and you've never touched a weight before and you want to be a competitive golfer you, you got some catching up to do right so um don't i think there's a bit of a stigma to maybe starting early but that goes back to crappy training right if you're doing things properly i mean you could start seven eight years old you could be teaching kids how to squat and hold a push-up position and do those things but um i think it's super important to not get caught up specializing in anything until you're uh, 14 15 years i really do i think at that level then you could really get super specific but at the at this level now with the competitive juniors and stuff like that and high school golf and college golf you better be doing something for sure I love that. And I, I think, you know, you look back as far as Jack Nicholas and how he was an amazing college basketball player in his own right when he was playing great golf. And now you look in today's day and age and you see a lot of these guys coming up on tour. Yeah. Some of them were like junior golf phenoms and they picked up the club and got on, you know, tours early, but you look at your most recent U S open champion, Gary Woodland and how he was a great basketball player. And in his own right, he just didn't have to choose between two different sports or put a polarizing image on, well, if I don't commit to this year round, then I'm never going to be good. Like he chose to be an athlete mm -hmm. and he chose to just, you know, fine tone, fine hone his skills in on just overall hand eye coordination and just being an athlete. And I think that that's what a lot of kids are getting maybe stuck in these days is just feeling like they have to specialize so early and I, and I loved, I love the, you know, position you took on that. I feel like just being an overall athlete is so, so key to not only uh, developing overall better skills, but just maybe I feel like overall enjoying kind of just sport in general. I'd love to get into your core values of, you know, the kind of four main aspects of, of your golf movement Academy and, and walk us through each one of those and why you feel as though they're, they're so important to, to what you do every day. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, I put this together because first of all, I'm a big self-development nerd. So I geek out on podcasts and books and conferences and all those things. So I think in the online space in particular, there is so much noise, right? And so much information out there from social media and from websites and stuff that it's really hard for someone to say, Hey, what the heck makes this guy better than this guy? Or why do I want to work with this person and not that person? So the approach I'm taking with how I look at my core values and how I approach my online business is I want someone to be able to look at me and say, Hey, this person's an expert, right? He's an authority in his field. He knows what he's talking about, but 
I feel like I know him too. He seems like a cool guy, right? I want to work with this guy. And I think that's also a huge positive of the online space because someone can reach out to me from wherever and says, Hey, you know what? I follow you and I like you. I want to work with you. Whereas if you're in a, you know, a a gym setting, you just get kind of put with a trainer for a lot of the time. So that's been one of the blessings about the online space. And that's where I kind of come together with what I put together for this in terms of what I would consider my core values and what I want people to um, embrace when they work with me. So that includes being growth minded to be able to consistently think that things are going to get better and that you're going to strive to be better than the, than you were before. We have a capacity to continue to learn something I hold to myself and try to learn and get better. So I want my clients to come in and say, Hey, you know what? I'm excited. I'm optimistic about the path moving forward. So we're going to be growth minded. We're also going to be intentional and that's just simply, Hey, you know what? with our thoughts, with our actions, with our commitment, we're going to be super intentional to focus on the things that we want in order to improve. Uh, the third one that I like is over deliver. And that's more so probably for me, but at the same time, I think for anybody, if, if you just go that extra mile, if you kind of do more and just, you know, under, um, was under promise and over deliver. Right. So I think that's just one of those things where if I can give you that little bit extra to say, this is what it's like send you a personalized note on your birthday or, you know, remember your kids' names or just send that travel program before you leave for your trip. Little things, right, to help the experience. I think that plays off. And then the final one is plan to succeed, is plan to do good things because I sure as hell believe in what I'm going to do. And if you want to come work with me and if you want to come make a change, I want you to say, hey, I'm committed. I'm in. I'm positive. Let's go. This is going to be something that we're going to make a change with together. So um, those are four things that I put together. It's something that I, I have a little sticky note on my computer right here that I look at um, just to hold myself accountable to. And that's something that I, again, when I have that first introductory call with, with clients to make sure that working together is a good fit, this, these are the type of things that I talk about. Yeah, that's another great thing that you just said there is accountability. It's kind of like you're and the personal touch, you know, you and I are working together, you're holding me accountable. And I'm also holding you accountable for you teaching me the ways, but me putting in the work, you can teach me everything you want. But if I'm not going in and putting in the work, and you're not holding me accountable, well, we're not striving to where we want to be in the goals that the, the player wants. And even as the coach wants to see in the player. Definitely agree with that you on that one right there. So, so true, Dante, because, and I think accountability is even harder again in the online space because I physically can't be there to say, Hey, get your ass over here. We're going to work out. Right. So I have to find a way to, to find out how to motivate you. But then yes, once we're on the same page, it's that constant communication It's that, Hey, what can we do? How can we plan? How can we strategize to make things better to make sure that we're making that sustainable change over time? So definitely. And I think you can actually put that into a spot to where, on a positive spin there that it actually might push the, to me, must push the player a little bit more because if you think about it, we're not, I'm not going to you and we're going into the same gym and you're like, all right, we got to push. Mm-hmm. It's that personal touch that you're putting with your clients too, that, Hey, what's going on? How are you doing? How's the work coming along? Even though you're not physically there, that can possibly spin it to as well. You know, you know, coach Mike's going to reach out to me soon, you know, Let's, you know, I, I need to put the work in. I need to get this, I need to get this grind going. I want these goals. I, I can see that there is, you know, where the accountability and even the drive can be in the player. 
Yes, we have a lot of fun <laughs> conversations. Yeah. How were your How were your workouts this week? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> All right, guys, we have Ben Peters on the show with us here. Ben, appreciate you joining us. Uh, you know, the East Coast, West Coast time had us a little jogged up here, but uh, we, we <laughs> got the technology to work and, and we got you on. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join us here. All right. Uh, th- thanks for having me, guys. Um, it's really a pleasure to be on the show, talk some golf. Yeah, man. So before we had you on the show or before we, you know, hit record, we were, uh, we were talking a little bit about your past week out at Pebble Beach and, and some of your favorite spots uh, that you were uh, taking some photos from. You know, Monterey Peninsula is just one of the most photogenic places, I think, on, uh, in the United States that we have. And I'd love to kind of hear your aspect of maybe some of your favorite shots that you had out from Pebble Beach this past week. And and just kind of run us through what uh, what that week looked like for you. Um, started out uh, a couple of practice rounds. Um, played Pebble um, with a couple of executive uh, guys that were actually playing in the tournament just as amateurs. Um, so it was kind of fun. They were playing a little bit of a game, and I was kind of taking some video of them early. Uh, they were kind of shooting the shit. Um, but once you get to three, um, you can see 17. Uh, the bunkering on three always kind of gets me. So I, I took a few photos there um, uh, during the U.S. Open. Uh, and they, they've shaved that whole area off. So it's really um, kind of like really kind of clean mowing lines and then really like cool bunker edging. that really just kind of draws you into the green. And then you got 17 in the background there, which is, uh, which is awesome. And then the ocean is just such a great backdrop. So you can't really go wrong once you get kind of down by three and four. Um, I stood, I sat by four a lot, uh, just shooting people that were coming off of uh, of, of three, two, of, um, of 16 also, because four uh, uh, T was connected to 17 T. Um, so you could shoot people hit playing the par three, and then you could shoot people playing um, the par four up and people were taking driver, people were hitting irons. Um, so I was just sitting there, um, just shooting, you know, swing sequences. So, uh, that's what some of the stuff that you guys have seen, like on my stories, they just like, everybody's just all, it's just, just this, the swing sequences are from the same spot. Cause I sat there for like two hours and right. just, uh, it was so cool. Um, in the backdrop of number four, um, you know, kind of just the, the bunkering of there. And then. Obvious number seven. I got I got a pretty cool shot uh, with the with the light um, kind of coming kind of coming across from you from like the the west and the, the northwest. Just kind of a beautiful evening with some nice clouds and the uh, uh, the balcony or like the um, the grandstand was all built up, so you can get like kind of a cool angle down on the green. And that was kind of neat because normally they have a much smaller um, grandstand. Uh, for like the AT&T or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so like I was you, able to do that for the higher open. Than, than usually you could get, I would imagine, or, or kind of just a better angle than, than normal tournaments out there. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, for the AT&T, it's just, it's just a little different because um, there's obviously a lot, like a lot less people. The grandstands are much smaller. You kind of can't get some of the vantage points, but uh, the other cool thing is that like, like not, there's not a lot of stuff that's in the way. Um, so I was able to kind of shoot number six. I mean, what I love 
shown like the scale of number six. Not a lot of people understand how treacherous that second shot is. Um, Cause you gotta kind of aim over the ocean a little bit. If there wasn't that TV tower there, I feel like guys would have such a tougher time really navigating that second shot. I feel like that, that TV yeah. tower is a little bit of a godsend for those players. hundred yeah. percent. You never aim far enough, right? And it's just hard to aim over the ocean. It's just, <laughs> you got to get, get it up quick. Otherwise it just hits that hill and then you're in that thick rough. Um, so I have actually have a really cool uh, swing sequence of Phil who drove in the left bunker uh, actually just above the bunker and like some really thick hay and he tried to go for it to get it up the hill and he just left it in the middle of the hill. Um, so I got both of that, both of those shots um, kind of in sequence with uh, his cat trying to line them up and kind of give him some kind of uh, idea of like, of like where the pin was and where the green was. But that, that hill is so severe, um, even though it can be, you know, an easier hole and, and sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you saw maybe 60% of guys on Sunday, you know, making a, a good go at the green. But it seemed like, the, you know, there was like that 40% in there that, man, if you miss that green when you're going for it, it can take some treacherous hops. And then you're short-sided with the bunker, and then you're hitting a, you're hitting a flop shot out into the ocean pretty much i mean your backdrops the ocean you know yeah out into the green from the left side so uh it was fun to watch guys navigate that hole you know when they didn't hit a great approach shot because it can become tricky really quick yeah the uh it's it's actually nice having number seven um to follow up you know six because it can it can be a little bit of a, a of an easy hole for some of these guys which because they're just kind of flopping a wedge down there um, but they're putting the pin in the back right and the back left, so it's just not very it's not it's not as easy as you think. It's just kind of like you hit it to the middle of the green, you know, but somehow you get a bounce and it just kind of squirts towards the hole. You're lucky, but you just try to hit it to the middle of the green and walk away with a par. Yes. And then uh number eight is also one of my favorites. Um I love getting behind that green and just shooting the pin. And uh the scale of that hole is just the scale of that hole is unbelievable. Once you get out towards eight through 10, um, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just a whole lot of fun. That's when the full display, I think of Pebble beach, like in its purity really, really shows itself. Obviously seven is like your, your signature hole, but you get out on eight and people forget just how much of a carry that approach shot is and how tough it is coming into that green. So I think, you know, being behind that green, like you said you were, would probably be one of my favorite spots because you get, you know, you get those approaches coming in on eight and then you get nine tee box that just sets you out right on the cliffs. Um, this, the scale of that course really comes to show itself within those holes of, of eight, nine, and ten. Um, and, and I always like to, you know, and I'd love to get your perspective on it too. We can, we can watch from, you know, the, the TV and see the blimp kind of showing it from, from so far out there. But, you know, do you think, do you think, with your ability as a photographer are able to capture how great that course is in, you know, in scale from, from some vantage points that you got out there. Yeah. That, I mean, that was kind of my main goal with Andy, uh, uh, during the U S open, um, was to shoot, to shoot scale of the golf course. I mean, everyone kind of gets in tight and, uh, doesn't try to include the crowd. Um, I mean, you've seen a lot in the past because, you know, there, there just weren't zoom lenses, you know, so you'd see a lot of photos with the, the, you know, the crowd that was included. 
But in today's game, they're trying to get in there real tight with a, with a huge lens and just, you know, block out the crowd and get a nice backdrop. So, um, you know, my goal was just to try to show – I have a couple pictures of the crowd, the head level, their head level, and then 10 fairway is above their head level. Like the whole, the whole 10th hole is above, you know, 1,000 people. And then you turn it around the other way and you look up 14 and then you can see, you know, Kevin Kisner in the fairway with his caddy and then a guy in the bunker up by the green. And then the, the guy by the bunker in the bunker by the green is above Kevin Kisner's head. <laughs> like this, you know, it's, it's that, it's that much more uphill, like to show you, you're talking, you know, 40 feet, you know, uphill which is you just don't you just you just don't see that from a from a tv's perspective no and and whether it's pebble beach or you know people talk about the undulation out at augusta i think it's the same kind of deal like you never truly get a a great read on on the you know the scale of hills or or mountainsides that these courses are cut into just by the tv you know broadcast you can't it really i think plays itself when when you're seeing guys on the greens and like say, man, how did that putt break that much? Because you just can't see yeah. it TV wise. But I feel like you, you know, you guys inside the ropes, and and maybe you can touch on this a little bit to to what life is like inside the ropes. You guys are able to capture that a little better from a photography standpoint because you can kind of be, you know, inside on the ground at that level of like eye level with the rest of the players. Um, it was actually. It was actually a lot uh, better this time because I, did, I was caddying for um, uh, an Apple executive, Eddie Q, who's one of the VC um, at Apple. Uh, great guy. Just had a fabulous time with him the whole week. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't actually have my camera with me um, like in the past when I've been shooting out there. Um, so I was watching Kuchar and I was watching Fitzpatrick putt. Um, you know, for four rounds because Kutcher and Fitzpatrick actually ended up playing with us on Sunday because they were both tied at six under and both of their short games are unbelievable. Um, I was so impressed with the contact on chip shots, uh, the sound off the face, just the, their ability to uh, hit their spot where they were looking. They were able to land the ball in the correct spot to be able to get it close to the hole. If like, if it hit a foot from where they were, the ball hit, it would hit the collar, it would bounce further away. You know, it wouldn't have the correct amount of spin. Um, I was extremely impressed with that, even though they did hit some bad chip shots. Um, but also their, the putting, their, their alignment, uh, you know, their, how consistent they are to their routine. I mean, they do the same thing every time. Uh, Fitzpatrick wanted the flag in a lot on short putts. I think it helped him. Uh, I mean, he made a lot of putts with the flag in. And Kucher just couldn't have the flag in. He just couldn't, couldn't look at it with the flag in. So, uh, I mean, some people – it's just it was just cool to see the, the differences in their styles. Their speed was probably the most impressive. Um, speed was just so good. Even on the toughest putts, uh, you know, the ball just was never more than – you know, a foot and a half behind the hole. You know, it was just—it was just so—it was so impressive how how they made thirty-five, forty footers look makeable. 
And I think that's uh, something like I, I think we even see as as hardcore golf fans, maybe not your everyday golf fans, but like us guys that watch a lot of golf are, are kind of tuned in on that, that like, you know, these guys have such great touch and, and it looked like Pebble Beach was playing really fast and really firm this week um, to have that kind of of gauge on your on your long long lag putts you know for most amateurs i feel like if you're in a five foot circle from 40 feet plus you're you're really happy and, and these guys are yeah. are giving runs at them you know these, these guys aren't just saying all right five foot circle call it a day these guys are trying to make these putts and, and if they aren't they're within like like you said a foot and a half tap in range um, yeah, and they were making bogey putts, like bogey putts that were like ten feet. Like, uh, sorry, Fitzpatrick had like a couple bogey putts that, I mean, were fifteen feet, and he made them both. Like, they they were just they 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 there was no way that they were missing. That's really cool. Now, I had I would not be doing our listeners any justice if I didn't transition a little bit into you know what made you get behind the camera for the first time and, and, you know, really start putting golf course photography out there. I think it's, you know, one of the, one of the main focuses obviously of your, of your Instagram account, but then, you know, it's just, it's, it's become kind of how we found you has been the golf course photography side. Of yeah. it. So uh, what made you get into that for the first time and, and, and what made you be the guy behind the camera and like, were you always that guy or, or did you transition into that kind of role? Um, I just first, I first started taking photos with a cell phone. Uh, and then I was, I thought they were good. Um, and my buddy was like, yeah, like these aren't, these aren't good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Newsflash. And, I was, and I was like, I was like, man, but this, look at this, look at this. And he's like, no, like you, like you can't just like slap a crazy filter on it. And I like, it looks, it looks crazy. It doesn't, it doesn't look good. <laughs> Um, so then I was like, what do you, what do you got to do? Uh, and this is my buddy, my buddy, Gunga Galunga Golf. Mike Davis. <laughs> Absolute maniac. Um, so he was, he was shooting with a Canon 1DX, which is a very, very good, uh, landscape camera, uh, video camera, everything. Uh, and he was editing stuff in like Lightroom and Adobe and, you know, camera raw and Photoshop, all that kind of stuff. And he was like, you got to shoot in raw and you got to get yourself a camera i was like all right i guess i gotta this this is what i want to do you know like give me some help so he gave me his little like canon uh like power shot from like 2013 he's like put it in raw and just start snapping away so I, I just started trying to figure out camera settings and snapping photos downloading them into lightroom and then just just editing them and just trying to figure it out i love the process of just trying to make something that I saw, you know, in real time look like that, you know, and then the more I did it, the more I realized how hard it was to make it look the way I wanted it to look. And I'm like, then, and then I, I kind of get some photos that like look decent. And then the more I kind of like would show them, like some of some, some of them look, would be like awesome. Like one or two would be like really good. And then I'd, I'd take one that I thought looked good. And then people would be like, this is this is no like this is not good so it was a learning process of just what a constant learning process constant trial and error um and then i ended up upgrading my equipment to sony stuff and then that really just took off because the camera was just so good that 
I had so much more power to be able to work with, um, just with settings, with light conditions, um, you know, even midday stuff. Uh, so once I got that camera, that Sony camera, I just took off and I just started to try to shoot as much as possible, even landscape stuff. Um, the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, that was what really kind of got me kind of going. I just wanted to go out there and shoot. I, I love, I love shooting water motion. Like you get the waves kind of smashing up against rocks. Uh, that was so cool. And I wanted to figure out like how people did that. Welcome back to the Enjoy the Walk podcast, guys. Pretty sweet episode this week. Kicking it on the caddy theme this week, guys. Tuesday, we had, uh, you know, the golf hawk uh, caddy out in the West Coast. So we're bringing you some East Coast swag this week from uh, down in the land of, uh, I don't know, Hidden Valley, would you say? Down in the North Carolina Pinehurst area. Uh, Pat Webster, or as the guys know, out in that Instagram life, the bagger. Bagger 24, man. Thanks for joining us this week. How's it going? Uh, dude, fellas, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. No doubt, man. So, I mean, right off the bat, I got to ask you, how's the Pinehurst life and, and what the hell brought you to being a caddy at one of the most prestigious resorts in the country? Man, it, it's honestly, it's a crazy story, dude. Honestly, like I actually started in the dark side. I was the manager sort of things. I was trying to be <laughs> the guy kind of behind the scenes in the office uh, and found out real quick that just prior military service, just who I am naturally that I was not meant to be in an office and uh, I just got naturally the ability to get along with people from around the world, man. And then, uh, before you knew it, man, I, I, I wound up back in North Carolina, back in Pinehurst, man, my family's all from here. So it made sense, you know, raising my son. It just made sense dude. in Pinehurst. I mean, it's, it's unreal, man. I mean, we got a, a pretty great gig out here. I can't really lie. Um, yeah, there's no doubt about that from what we see you post and, and other guys you know kind of in your area us guys up here in the northeast struggling with this cold weather are always uh jonesing to get out when we see you guys playing just about every day and you know D december and january and february oh, <laughs> yeah it's awesome hey i gotta throw a big shout out you know my, my, my fairly maryland boy salisbury you know that kind of yeah that hey repping hey. that maryland flag for those youtube watchers you you gotta rep it, that salisbury maryland life hey i, I ain't gonna lie but i don't miss that 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 weather up there that's that's a fact yeah now it's a little southern for me and, and i know isaiah and i grew up in southern pennsylvania so it's it's south for me comparably to where i grew up but not near south enough that's for yeah. sure something that just blew my mind and i think a lot of people maybe don't know because they always just think of pinehurst number two and they kind of stop there but pinehurst actually has nine courses on the property and then the new cradle course that they just you know finished up within the last 12 to 14 months or whatever what is your favorite walk around pinehurst other than number two because i know number two has such the storied history you know that i think we should we always want to shine light on you know the underdog in this podcast so like other than number two what is your favorite walk around pinehurst okay so it's obviously took number two away and i promise you every loop with me you'll get some history you don't get on the videos <laughs> so just a little note there boys but uh outside number two man that's tough uh, as far as caddying is that what you're asking I think overall, just, you know, whether you're playing it or, playing. or caddying, just overall favorite walk around Pinehurst. I'm going to keep it honest, man. It's got to be a course three as far as when it just comes to just any day of the week. I don't know. It doesn't matter what the weather's like, whether it be me and the boys just going out and walking number three. It's a par 68. It's like a mini number two. 
it, the greens are out of this world. It's one of the coolest little short, short courses you'll ever play. Um, and then as far as definitely looping, man, it's got to be four. Uh, course four is unreal, especially since the, the, the new restoration by Gil Hans. It's, you just got to be, you know, you got to see it to believe it. I, I can talk days and days about four and, and the, the, the improvements they made and the shots you can hit into there from all over the golf course and the green complexes and just the routing and just all of his mindset kind of behind it. Um, I've had the, the honestly, the, the luxury of, of caddying in his group before and um, hearing his kind of from his own, you know, ideas and his mindset throughout designing the golf course. So for me that every time I go around the golf course with my players, I always regurgitate that. I literally just the whole time, Hey, you know, when I was looking for Gil Hans, he was telling me on why he decided to do this versus this. And, you know, this is his, his idea of why he did this hole like this. And the rounding is because of his idea on this, you know, it's just, it really is a lot of fun. And that golf course is unreal. There's spots in that course where you can see 12 holes. It's just the golf epicenter. That's crazy. And I think that's so like such a miss, uh, miss, not misinterpreted, but just kind of misunderstood part of golf that it's like so commercialized is people forget that like architects actually designed this course to be played a certain way or like for shots to have looks from this angle or from that angle. And that's why there's collection areas here in the fairway or, you know, that's why balls run off a slope into a certain spot because the architects want you to play that hole a certain way and it's designed to challenge you in a specific manner and like to to be able from your end of things to be able to caddy and just to be able to be in the ears of people and say well you know Gil said to hit it here so I mean yeah. it's just that's that's a pretty neat scenario and I think you know whether it's you know Gil or whether it's Donald Ross on the th on number three at Pinehurst there's those guys are just absolute legends in their own right and to be able to like have that insider information has got to be just one of a kind when you yourself is walking through these courses hole by hole. It's so much fun, man, especially when like you got an approach shot into a green and the, your player has zero confidence. You're like, listen to me, trust me. If you just hit that on that left edge of that green, it's going to be inside 10 feet of that flag and the flags in the back, right? Or something <laughs> yeah. absurd, you know, and then they hit this, Decent shot, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, they're disappointed in it, and I'm just smiling, cheesing, and I just, here you go, why don't you hold this, give them the putter about 160 yards out, I'll meet you at the green. And they get up there, it's like 10, 12 feet from the pin, and they look at me with their eyes just like, oh my gosh. like Just bewildered that it actually you're, you're worked. You're right, Pat. Yeah. Like, you are a good caddy. <laughs> That's really funny. We, we had the same thing on Tuesday's episode with Ben Peters. He caddies out in the West Coast, and he said he had a lot of his players kind of the same deal. He's like, listen, bro, just listen to me, and I swear I will get you around this place because I've walked every – you know, when you're working or when you're sleeping or whatever you're doing, I'm here. This is what yeah. I do. So, exactly. <laughs> let, me, let me get you around this place. No doubt, yeah, man. That's, and that's I'll awesome. always say it's funny because, like, Obviously, I know the greens and stuff like the back of my hand, but uh, you know, kudos to this one of the caddies named John Ross. He's like a he's eighty something years old, dude. He two he will only carry two bags, only. Like if you give him a single, he will probably give you some choice words. What a um, trooper! He is wow. the man, dude. And if he honestly, he could be talking to the birds over here in the trees, and he could look at his player and say, two balls, right edge," and that's what's going to do. He is an absolute just OG. Mm. 
Wow. Now I saw a, another kind of old looper that I wanted to shine some light on here is actually in your Instagram account, Bobby Hill. Uh, you know, oh, I wanted to give you the platform since, you know, it looked like a really, really great cause for, for the people that are listeners out there to maybe get behind uh, maybe, you know, a little bit about Bobby Hill, his story and, and kind of what he's going through right now. Oh, my pleasure. And before I even jump any further into it, I first off uh, kudos to uh, Matt Janela for him just taking his platform and putting it out there for the world to see, especially the Instagram and the social media world, because he honestly is what started the fire under this whole entire thing. Um, and also taking it back one step before that, a couple of the caddies, uh, you know, we have a couple of caddies, Jamie, and they know who they are. Um, unbelievable guys. They're the ones that set up the account for the GoFundMe and they are the ones who take care of Bobby and go see him on, on a daily basis and, and really have been looking out for him ever since this entire thing started happening. Um, so definitely before I begin, kudos to them guys and thank you for all of their help. Um, but yeah, man, Bobby Hill is just, he's a character, man. I can, I, I've looked at that guy many times. I remember when I first got to Pinehurst, I got thrown on like team 10. So I was just the bottom of the barrel. Um, I wasn't like, a, I was not an like unestablished caddy. I'd been to some pretty prestigious spots, but at Pinehurst, I had no name. And so I would be out on this, on this golf course. And this is obviously a little bit towards the later of Bobby's kind of caddying career. And so he would always come out there and he would take care of the guys who wanted a cart, you know, wanted a single bag or a double bag. But the thing with Bobby is he didn't carry bags. So he always had to have a cart in the fairway. So I'd be out there just humping and it'd be 110 degrees in the middle of July. And I'm just over here double bagging and just dying. And uh, Bobby Hill just be cruising right by me in the cart, just to cheesing at me, just waving to, <laughs> waving to you. You know, obviously he's put in like 60 years of caddy service. So, I'm not going to say a word. Might have like, earned those wheels, right? Exactly, right? So <laughs> I'm just walking. I, and, um, and then I, like, get to a bunk, and he'd be like, don't worry, youngin. I got it for you. And he'd just keep – I'd just, all right, you know, keep on walking. And he'd do his thing. And honestly, you really can't say – he would do anything for any of the caddies for sure. Um, he's been there for a long time. So any, you name – you talk to any Pinehurst caddy, they know guys like Willie and, and Bobby and, and John Ross. Like, you know those names. They are household names. Um, and, and it's just unfortunate, you know, things happen to good people, man. And, and mm. I will say, though, even after all of this, uh, he is a hot caddy in the Caddy Hall of Fame at Pinehurst, um, which is any caddy will tip the cap to that. That is something that you really you solidify yourself as a caddy at Pinehurst when you make it to the Hall of Fame. Um, and But through it all, he is just spirits up, man. Um, just, you know, just talking to Jamie and some of the guys who have been looking after him and, and keeping in contact with him. His, his spirits are up. Uh, he loves hearing about how much everybody is, you know, rooting for him. And he loves hearing the fact that, you know, just all the, all the help that Machinella has brought to him and some little things like, you know, people have been making him quilts and sent him letters and just the little stuff, man. Um, it honestly, and uh, especially when he got, you know, the hall of fame, that was something that for him, you know, I'm pretty sure that that trope for that plaque is probably sitting right beside his bed right now. Um, so I can say nothing but good things about Bobby. Uh, that's that's pretty special and, and you know just for any listener who uh doesn't know what we're talking about you know head on over to uh pat webster's uh instagram at bagger underscore 24 that's b-a-g-g-e-r underscore 24 it's right there in a the link in his bio you can find out all the information there and if you guys want to donate to the cause um I, I know it would mean a lot to us as as our fans but it would mean a whole lot more to pat and everybody there uh in the caddy barn down at pinehurst so uh guys go check that out for sure uh it would mean a lot to all of us definitely in the golf industry Stop.
the man behind the uh, legendary page is Stephen Barry, and he's here to join us and just chat golf and all of his beautiful putter magic. So, Stephen, thanks for joining us, man. Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. No oh, doubt. Yeah. So, you know, we got we to gotta start off with how you're connected uh, through – kind of the Ron Jaworski side of things at Running Deer and, and Dante. Uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, Golf Drawn, the company Golf Drawn is out of there. Uh, you are out of there with S-Dot Putters and now Dante with Enjoy the Walk. Uh, is, is there something in the water up there at Running Deer or, you know, what's going on up there in New Jersey? You didn't hear? We got <laughs> Jaws water now, baby. Yeah, Come on. Right. <laughs> Ain't that the truth, man. A <laughs> uh, little, little, little inside joke there. But, uh, yeah, Ron did release his own branded uh, – water it's called jaws water which is kind of funny it's a little bit of a joke we have up there but uh no i don't know um i guess uh i i honestly don't know maybe it's just coincidental or anything but i think that the community is kind of kind of a little bit smaller and more tight-knit and, and people just love the sport up here so they want to make a career out of it and they, they kind of go that route so I guess that's it. I have no other explanation for it besides the jaws water. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> hey, well, I, I like the saying there's something in the water and, and obviously there's something yeah. to that up there. Now, uh, how many, how many jaws courses are up in that area, guys? I'm not too familiar with all those Jaworski owned courses up there. Six. I believe there's six. So there's running deer, river winds, Valley Brook, um, blue iron pines, ramble wood, and uh downing town yeah, and then so. he just acquired well he, he i think he owned it but now they're officially under the jaws uh golf management honey run out in york pennsylvania yeah, yeah, he picked yeah, that that's, one that's up. their so mind six seven old stomping grounds i grew up in gettysburg yep. just outside of york so uh I, I played a good many junior matches at honey run that's a pretty good course if you guys get a chance to go out okay. to it but uh nice, nice yeah so so did you grow up in the new jersey area or or what brought you into new jersey area if you didn't grow up there? um I did. I get born and raised in South Jersey. Um, I spent my summers in, in PA. My parents were, were never together. So I would spend my weekends and my summers with my dad over in uh, um, Bucks County, right outside of Philadelphia. But um, other than that, I was always in South Jersey, born and raised. Um, so I lived, uh, I lived kind of near River Winds, which is basically if you stood on the roof of our house, you can see the skyline of Philadelphia, but just on the Jersey side of it. And uh, that was basically it. I mean, Moved a little bit further south to Malka Hill, and that's where I live now. And just kind of living the dream up here. <laughs> and the funny thing about Malka Hill is how I met Steve. Uh, oh boy, this is actually a good story. <laughs> I had a uh, I had a Scotty Cameron that I picked off. Uh, I don't even remember where I got it, but besides the point, anger management Dante over here gets pissed one day, and you know I throw I baseball bat the ball end up bending the hosel of the putter so you know i'm like i'm not using this thing so you know i'm on i'm on i'm scrolling through facebook scrolling through facebook and if anybody knows facebook group has a uh, golf club traders it's basically a giant community group over like forty thousand people and you can go on and anybody's just selling any of their golf equipment uh through there a lot of the time it's scotty putters so i'm like i really like my scotty to see if i can find another one so i'm scrolling 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 and the next thing i see you know, I'm in Glassboro, New Jersey, and Moloka Hill's about 10-minute ride. So the next thing I see, I see this, uh, see this putter for sale, and it was a Scotty Cameron. It was a uh, Monterey, California, I believe. Uh, pretty, it was like smoke. Had this nice gray smoke color to it. I'm like, cool, cool black oxide. 
Yeah, Black there you Black paint, Phil. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I'm like, this thing is sick. So I was like, I reach out and I'm like, that uh, still for sale? Yeah. Molica Hill? Yeah. Uh, I'm Glassberg. He goes, no shit. I was like, where he play out of? He goes, running deer. I was like, get the fuck out of here. He's like, no way. I was like, yeah, me too. He goes, get out of here. And that's out of, and never seen him. And I, we've been, I've been Don, there. Don, let me cut him off. I was more upset though, because now I had, I knew I had to discount the putter. Oh, I'm like, no. man, I'm going to lose a few dollars here. Son of a bitch. That family discount <laughs> well, always hurts. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I did totally give him, I did. I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> so I go, so I gave him my I bent one, which I he pro, which he did fix, and then you know punched that back out, which I could have just asked him to fix that one, but I was like, you know what, I just want a nice, I just want a nice good one. Uh, yeah, so that was it was pretty wild. Out of forty thousand people, we've been playing at the same course for a few years now. Never crossed path, probably crossed paths, but didn't even realize it. Next thing I know, out of forty thousand plus people, I meet him online, and he's ten minutes away. Yeah, it was, that's pretty nuts. It's small. It does. Golf does have a weird way of shrinking the world, without a doubt. I mean, I do have another story I could tell too about, about Pine Valley. So I, I, I will because it's it's a really good one. It's a really good one, and um, I pat myself on the back too, of course. But, uh, so, so I was on. It must have been three weeks to a month. I started okay, and there was were a hot summer day. It's in the middle of August. Index heat index probably one hundred five one ten. So. A couple of days prior, um, I don't want to use his name. So one of the other caddies, he actually uh, passed out about a week prior from heat exhaustion. So he was back, and um, we're all in the. We all have set tea times. We it's not like a place where you go and you wait. You you have a set tea time. You be there an hour before your tea time, and then you go. Um, so we're sitting there, and I get called up with this caddy that passed out. I'm like, I'm talking to another guy. I'm like, God, please hope he doesn't pass out on me. Like, I, I really don't feel like dealing with that. So, uh, so we go up, everything's fine, get, get our guys. And the guys I have are – Dante, have you ever heard of the Heil? Yes. In Wildwood? Okay, yes. The Heil, the, 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 the Heil is basically this big four-ball tournament to have down the shore. So the guys that are playing in the four-storm are all guys that play in the Heil that I know. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. We're going to have a great day. You know, these guys are awesome. Um, so we start, we get on one, everything's going smooth, everything's good. So between 11 and 12 is 11 green, 12 tee box is a really steep incline. It's about, I want to say maybe 200 feet from the green to the tee. And it's probably a 30 degree incline. So it's, it's a steep walk, okay? So we're walking from the tee to the green, or from the green to the tee. And the caddy that I'm caddying with, um, I'm passing him. And I look back and I say, hey, you, you okay? You drinking water? And he looks at me and kind of mumbles. And I, I, it's like, okay. So I take another three steps. I look back. I'm like, you all right? And all of a sudden, he drops to his knees. And it, I run back. I'm like, you okay? And he's like, yeah, I'm fine. He goes to get up. And then, boom, straight down. Starts having a seizure on the ground. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I yell up to those guys. I'm like, guys, someone's got to call 911. Someone please call 911. And then they start running back. And I'm looking at him, and I'm like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And he's kind of basically having a seizure on the ground. And I'm like, it'll be all right. And I've never, I don't know, he, he stopped, well, he stops breathing, right? So now I'm taking, I take a pulse. I don't, I don't see a pulse. Basically, he dies. He dies. So I start doing CPR. One, two, three, four, five, 15 compressions, stop, 15 compressions, stop, 15 compressions, stop. I'm going to, I'm going to try to shorten the story. So 
he comes back. Bring, I bring him back. Then he goes back down again. So I keep doing compressions. So I often on compressions for about 10 minutes. And in the meantime, the GM comes out, has a defibrillator. We shock him three times, keep doing compressions. Ambulance comes, takes him away. I'm like shaking beyond belief. The guys that are, we're playing with, they're, they don't even want to play golf anymore. The T is now lined up with about 30 players because you got to realize the course is packed. <laughs> the course is packed. That's one of the, so I get done, the, the EMTs get there, I back up, and I look to my left, Ryan Palmer. <laughs> Ryan Palmer's standing right next to me. I'm like, oh, no shit, it's Ryan Palmer. Yo, see what I just did? Shit, what? What's up? <laughs> I, I remember hearing the bar, you got on tour? <laughs> I remember hearing yeah. bits of that story at a, at the bar after like a couple of rounds at, yeah. at the so, beer. Um, I was like and as you were saying that I was putting the pieces together. Oh, wow, man. I didn't hear the full story. That's that's amazing. Crazy. So come to find out. So now it's like, what do I do? I have four bags. There's only one of me. I can't carry four. Um but one of the guys was an older gentleman and a lot of times they let the older guys take carts. So he had a cart, but if they have a cart, you still have to carry their bag. They're allowed to drive in the cart, but you have to carry their bag. So I'm like, I tell the GM, I said, hey, I'll just strap two bags on the cart. I'll carry two. And whenever you get me somebody, just bring them out. He's like, no, I got another guy coming out right now. I'll just wait for a second. I'm like, okay, no problem. So the other guy comes out. And it's this guy, Justin, who's like all like happy-go-lucky. Like, hey, this, today's awesome. Let's have a party. And he gets there and he's in that attitude. And it's like, nobody's in a party attitude so we actually so we fit we get to 17 and the gm's coming down in the cart and the guy one of the one of the guys is playing he's like oh boy this can't be good news i was like no it has to be good news because it was bad news he wouldn't come and tell us while we were playing he wouldn't ruin he wouldn't the round on you yeah exactly so he comes up thanks us thanks us for all that thanks me for doing what i did and he's like he woke up in the ambulance. He's fine. Tried to fight out of the ambulance. He's fine. Everything's good. Come to find out, he wasn't that good. He actually wound up having a massive heart attack. Had to have triple bypass. Oof. And is now back caddying again. So it does have a uh, does have a good ending yes. to the story, which was uh, but my crazy. That's my cra- That's actually my lifetime crazy that's, story. That's absolutely insane. I was gonna say. I was gonna ask you some good stories you had, but. That's by the that's way. Good, that, that's as good hey, as it's gonna hey, get. Not for nothing. It's a bad. It's a bad story with a very good ending. Welcome back to the Enjoy the Walk podcast, guys. As we said, we have the champions of the Barstool Classic from 2019. Uh, played in our local qualifier out in the Philly area at Philmont Country Club. Uh, Rocco and Anthony Hoffman, guys. Thanks for joining us, man. How you guys doing? Yeah, nice. What's up, fellas? How you doing? Appreciate you guys having us on. Yeah, pretty, thanks. Pretty fin- finally, we're, we're glad we're glad that we got to meet you at Philmont. Now we're uh, enjoying your uh, podcast. Yeah, yeah I mean, a lot think, of fun. things we, have you changed came a long a way, right? Since uh, things have changed a little bit since Philmont, you know, yeah. guys, you know, going from the amateur status to pro status, all of a sudden, uh, I feel like you know a lot of guys out in that Philly area that we just met along the way when we played up there. Um, had that little Philly underdog chip on your shoulder. Does that come in everyone that grew up in Philly? Is that just a Philly thing? <laughs> well, when you, when you watch our Philly sports team struggle for so many years, I think we all <laughs> want to just try to win something. So. Yeah, I think everyone's just angry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you don't win, 
obviously like that's just the best way to describe yeah, it <laughs> everyone's angry it's just that that anger that's been blown up inside for so long right yeah it's always the hype and then the disappointment oh, yeah God. and then the anger <laughs> then the anger so when the, when, the, when the hype lives up to itself, it's well worth it. Now, I got to ask, you guys said you started playing better ball tournaments together. What was your first better ball event that you guys, like, ever entered as partners? And was there ever a moment that you were like, man, maybe we just shouldn't be partners? Wow. It's got to be one of the Philly Pulp Links tournaments. I think it was a, a three-day event at Cobbs Creek. And uh, was that was our first better ball, though, right? I think, I think like, it was, yeah. And, yeah, that was, like, our the first year. well. See, our, our biggest problem with this Philly better ball was we played throughout high school, and we would tear it up on qualifying day. And then match play. Oh, we'd, we'd shoot. We'd be first in qualifying. Yeah. And shoot like eight, uh, nine and we knew we had it. Yeah, we knew we had it because we were, we were leading the way in qualifying, and then we get to match play and just poop our pants. Oh, God. We get... I think it, it was, was like the worst. It was the worst couple years ever. Yeah. Like trying to get through that first couple rounds of match play. And then we each, you know, each year we learned. We got better and better, and then we got that championship, and I we. Yeah, it's a story for another time. <laughs> well, that story, that story was on the four play podcast. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll let those guys own that one. I, we definitely know that story. For those who don't, uh, you know, go check out our boys over at four play. They got that awesome story. But uh, yeah, no, I always just think it's funny, you know, when you enter into these better ball events and you see some guys that like you, you know, automatically they've been playing since you know playing together since they were like, you know in diapers and then you got other guys that like are just trying to make it work so you can tell how like tense they are around each other and just aren't that good camaraderie and and it's guys like you that just thrive in that event and you can see when people get comfortable with each other how easy they kind of vibe and just start rattling off birdies um you know you guys had some pretty good success at the 2018 PPGA fall classic you guys took home that championship were there any other better ball championships you guys took home other than the Barstool Classic? Or before the Barstool Classic, um, better bowl events. We yeah, we won. Um, we won one at Jeffersonville. It was another PPGA event. Yeah, um, we it was won more like what was that? A six. That was like a six-six-six event, which was pretty neat. Which is still like a, I think it was six alternate shots, six oh, yeah, scramble, and then six better ball. And yeah. the better ball was we we did the best on the better ball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we actually um. We lost in two or three playoffs for better ball events. Mm -hmm. We lost one yeah. in the Hills uh, just before the Barstool Classic, which was that, – that was ridiculous, that 18th hole that we had to play. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, we lost a few playoff holes for championships. So, we're always – we're always around it. We always – we're never too far off the leaderboard. We're always pretty confident with each other. I mean, we've played with each other probably over two, 3,000 times. Yeah, I'd say we trust, we trust each other a lot. So – I mean, we, we know each other's games, especially coming out from high school, and we, that's, we've known each other for however long it's been, 10-plus years now, and now playing golf together, it's kind of become easy. He knows what club I want to hit. He knows what club – I know what club he wants to hit. I know what shot he wants to hit. He knows what and shot I, know, I want. I know I want to whoop his ass, and he knows he wants to whoop my ass. Yeah, so, like, that's, going against – That's the, the best too. right there. That's the, secret, <laughs> that's the secret sauce to making a good better ball team happen. Yeah. It's just, like, yeah, you guys are part of a team, but it's like, all right, I'm going to go out and shoot 66. All right, well, fucker, I'm getting you by one. I'm going to shoot yeah. 65 on your ass. Like, <laughs> I'm not letting you beat me. That's, we, where, that's where it matters. We've came up – we've had so many talks, like, after, after tournaments and, and, you know, car rides home and talking about, like, losses and talking about ties and talking about wins. 
And we were like, yeah, why don't we just like try and play against each other in an event just one day? And we're like, we always fire off birdies left and right against each other. So like, let's just do it that way. Yeah. So um, I don't think we talked about it, but I don't think we ever put it to the test. Um, <laughs> it's in the back of our minds, I think. It's hey. in the back of our minds, yeah. Yeah, like, I was just say, hey, save, save us all and don't whip it out for 2020 Barstool Classic so we at least have a chance, all right? I, I think I, I want to ask you guys, I, I know, Hoff, you're a big uh, advocate and, uh, you know, employee for the first tee. I want to get into the first tee a little bit and how you guys kind of got affiliated with the first tee. Um, you know, maybe what you guys do with it. And uh, Rock, I don't know if you help out a lot with the Philly first tee. I know Hoff does, but you know, how you guys just got started with the first tee of Philadelphia? Um, yeah, so, um, we, we uh, as we said, we played high school golf at Walnut Lane Golf Club. And um, that was actually home of the first tee at the time. So we grew up at another municipal course in a different part of the city. So we weren't introduced to the first tee or knew anything about it. Um, and as we got to high school, we seen it around us as we were at practice. They had first tee classes going on at the same time. So we always had an eye for it, and we would help out whenever we could, so especially when we um, became older students in the in the school. We'd come down and help the uh, the old golf professional at Walnut Lane with some classes and whatnot. Um, so we've always been around it. Um, a couple of our teammates were actually members of the first tee and grew through the program and played at Pebble Beach for the Pro-Am that they have every year, the Pure Insurance Championship. Um, so we've always been around it. We were always jealous of them because they were going on trips and <laughs> going to different life. Yeah, we were, I, we never, we never knew about it until we've seen our one buddy going, uh, to Pebble Beach and we're like, why didn't we join the first day? We're all made. <laughs> Where did I go wrong? <laughs> we're kind of upset about it. So well, we, as I got into college, I went to a, a Chestnut Hill College, which is pretty close to one Lane golf course. I'd go over there when we couldn't have access to White Marsh Country Club. Um, the hit balls and stuff like that, practice chipping and stuff. So started working at Walnut Lane and got introduced to the program, started teaching some classes, and a couple of years later, Rocco joined the team for a while. I was supposed to join first, you know that. Yeah, it was all, all from there. I beat him for it, though. My schedule worked out a lot better. Never not a little competition, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Always. 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 <laughs> no, that's awesome. <laughs> would you say i know i mean we've had uh we had some members of the first tee on in this podcast before and they talked about the nine core values but um aside from that what would you guys say is you know really the most fulfilling part about the first tee and and what they do as an organization i mean for for us we're we're very hands-on we're both, we're both coaches for a while so just seeing the progress of the kids that go through the program and you watch them grow and you see that these core values really impact them and they turn into good citizens with the community so I think for me that was the best part and watching them grow in the game of golf I'm a very big supporter and playing as much as you can and practicing and getting better at whatever you do so if we're teaching these kids golf I want to see some results out of them as well and I think that was the most fulfilling part for me just watching them go through the program and becoming young adults. I think you see that in a lot of like you know just children's camps in general but especially the first tee is like you're not only teaching them golf you're teaching like just how to grow up and be better uh better individuals uh within you know whatever aspects of life they may take on after the first tee yeah i mean it's not all about golf you know so we it, we use golf as a vehicle to drive all this stuff i mean uh you surround them with good people hopefully they learn some things that they can carry on for the rest of their life uh like we said earlier we met you guys at philmont um, was it business as usual for you guys getting through Philmont? I mean, Rock, you pretty much own the place. So it was uh, playing like the back of your hand, you know? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, like, again, that story that when we first found out it was at Philmont, um, I was working at the bar, he was working at the bar, and my buddies were telling me, they're like, yo, uh, the Barstool Classic thing is at your spot. I'm like, what do you mean my spot? And they're like, your golf course. I'm like, and my friends, they don't know much about golf. They're just like, you know, they're at your golf course. I'm like, what golf course, dude? <laughs> so um, they're like, Philmont. And I'm like, oh, no way. So I check, I looked it up, I searched it. Right down there, I think it's like one in the morning at this point. I called Hoff. I was like, yo, the Barstool Classics at, you know, it's at Philmont. We're going to Liberty National. We're playing for 10 grand. You got to see the trophy. I'm paying the 600 right now for us. Let's go. He's like, all right, that's fine. Um, <laughs> <Talk to you. laughs> um, we were sold on that. So then once once that all happened, um, Philmont, I mean, it's – I played it for two, three years. I won a club championship there. Um I had my first two home ones there. I mean, it's it's wait wait, wait 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 first two. Yeah, I had them in like three week a month span maybe. How many do you have now? Just two. Okay, <laughs> I thought you were Just gonna rattle two. off like three, four, five, six, seven or something like that. Nah. I, was to, I was about to hang up on you. Got my first two there. <laughs> nah, got Just two now. That's uh, it's they came in a month span so. One on eight, one on seventeen. But besides me, I don't, I don't want to talk about me. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, nah, it's Belmont's a great track. I mean, I brought Hop up there a couple of times, so he knows it. He knew it pretty well going in. And obviously, it's, it's a lock. You know, it's not hard to play. I mean, after any home track, you know, for a while, you played in tournaments there. You played in, you know, your member guests, whatever it could be. But yeah, that was an easy, easy W or easy win. I wasn't really worried. I mean, half you. Were you worried? Uh, we didn't start off too hot. No. Uh, definitely didn't start off too hot. I was struggling a little bit. I think Actually, I, we buried the first hole. What are you talking about? Yeah, that was you, not me. Um, <laughs> I, I was struggling, and I was a little nervous because I didn't know what if, it was, if I was going to pick up the slack. Um, say he makes a double bogey, and I'm not there to help. That's that's our big thing, him and egging it. So um, I struggled. at I think I shot 75-ish, and um, Rocco – Rockets Six, sixty-six. We had a uh, we had the rain delay. It's effective. And we went in there, and I was like, "Rock, yo, put the trulies down. Have a couple. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not over yet. It's still some business yet." Left. That yeah. was one of my questions because you know, actually, like a couple of the barstool stops, we had a pretty lengthy rain delay. Um, was watching guys start, you know, snake cups. They were right. they were like eight, nine, ten trulies deep. And uh, I was like, well, if they're at the top of the leaderboard, Dante, we got a chance. I was like, I'm not saying we got to go. We, I mean, we knew we had to go out firing after the rain delay. But uh, I was watching a lot of guys just pound their, pound their leaderboard chances off of their uh, – off the truly. So I was like, all right, if we don't if – we, if we stay semi-sober, we might have a shot coming out of this rain delay. Yeah. Hoff, Hoff warned me very, uh, very yeah. soon once, <laughs> once uh, the rain delay happened. And I'll, give you, I think, I'll, I'll give you one thing, Rock. I'll give you one thing, Rock. After the rain delay, I think we were struggling, and I could tell Rock was in another zone when we got back out there. I, I, put, on, I put on uh, Dreams and Nightmares. Yeah. You rattled um, off a couple of birdies. I think I, I rattled off eight. two in a row, yeah. 12 and 13, lipped out one 14, birdied 15, right? That's or no, we birdied, we birdied 17. You birdied 17. Yeah. So, yeah. Shout out, basically, shout out to Meek Mill for getting you through. Oh, uh, yeah. Your second well, I mean, you know. <laughs> After the Bird Super Bowl win, like you can't dreams and nightmares just get you pumped up no matter what where you're at. I'll be honest, I'm not even a Birds fan, and dreams and nightmares just it, it gets you to that level. Get you to that it, level. You need to get it. Hits, it hits differently. 
<laughs> no, that's <laughs> awesome, man. And then, uh, yeah, you guys, you guys pretty much cruised through Philmont then. That's basically the, the story of Philmont. You get to the championship out at Liberty National. You know, talk us through that whole experience. You know, you guys got to go to HQ, hang out with everyone from Barstool, um, chill with Jake Owen, lose to a putting match with Jake Owen. You know, what was that, like, pre-festivity like hanging out at Barstool HQ? Uh, it was cool. Our first experience was um, we, we thought we were fashionably late, but we walked oh, in. We were way late. <laughs> the lady looked at us and was like, what are you doing? Like, why are you so late? And we're like, well, uh, we came. Like, we thought know. we came like forty-five minutes late. Would have been like fashion me late, I guess. Hey, yeah. hey, everybody was like, "Damn, these guys are these are these are just getting here." <laughs> but I mean, it was, it was a great time. They had a good event up there. Fun contest was fun. Uh, obviously, Jake Owen won. I don't think they gave him the money. Yeah, it, um, it worked out. It was a you couldn't have mapped it or pictured it or planned it any better than than what it was. You know. You know, I mean, what they could do better, what they did this year, make it three days. So, 100%. Yeah, a lot of days. Um, but, like, Jake Owen, like, him draining the putt, like, you know, lifting the arm, then taking the jacket off and draining the putt again. Like, come I was going to say, like, there's just some things you just can't make up to make a better storyline. And just yeah. from us watching even at home on the story, on the Barstool story, it was just – it was picture perfect. They couldn't have written it any better. For a, nah, for a pre -party. It, was, it was awesome and then he played in it he plays in the event and then i mean for us obviously the next day going forward yeah um now the only thing i regret about that is not taking the ferry with everybody but i think us driving ourselves we got our zone and yeah we do our own thing yeah, we don't we do all right we, so so that's a little insider secret that everyone thought you know the whole barstool classic went over in the ferry the winners didn't even yeah. take the ferry Mm -mm. We we drove. We were stayed in the hotel five minutes away from the course. Suspicious yeah. causes, right there. <laughs> five, we met. We, listen, we've done this plenty of times. I think. <laughs> I think we nailed it on the head yep. that day, October fifteenth. That's when we nailed it on the head. Yeah, that's right. Hey, that was a that was an early wake up call for those guys getting out of getting oh, yeah. out of bed to catch the ferry that's, in time. That's what I said. That's what we, I, said we, we talked about it. We said, do you, I said, Hoff, do you want to go on a ferry at five five in the morning? He's like. No, why don't we just stay in the hotel? It's five minutes away. We'll wake up at six thirty and then get right over there. You know, <laughs> I mean, an extra hour of sleep is always always worth it. You know, yeah. There's something about golf tournaments too that just whenever you're traveling to a golf tournament, get those practice rounds in. You're always just a little extra beat, like the night before an event. So especially with that pre-party and everything, it's like if you can get as close as possible to the golf course, why the hell wouldn't you? Yeah, that's exactly I mean, what I thought about too. Uh, and a lot of people were saying that it was very cold on the ferry. And I would have been a little pissed if I was sitting there freezing my ass off beforehand and trying to get up and get ready. For to a good, like, 30, 40-minute uh -oh. ride from Manhattan yeah, to the course. Uh, yeah. I'm cool. Yeah, I, I did that in seventh grade. I'm, I think I'm good for now. Yeah, I, I went there. I went out to uh, Manhattan with my parents in the fall, and we caught it on the blusteriest day possible. And I was on the ferry mm. for like an hour and 20 minutes, and it was an hour and 19 minutes, way too freaking long. Yeah. <laughs> it's not enjoyable. No, not at all. Um, uh, that's crazy. So, go, I mean, going into the, the next day, um, like I said, we stayed five minutes away. We drove over. We had our, we had our tune set up for the morning. You know, listen to our music. We had everything ready to go. And then, you know, coming up to Liberty National, I mean, that's a top-of-the-line course. And we've played some nice courses, but, like, going up to there, dude, it was 
just yeah, that whole that thing. Something special. Yeah. I mean, we were looking up for two months beforehand, like, oh my God, I can't wait to pull off this place. Like, I mean, yeah. you go to a place that's had like an electric President's Cup and just watching that place on TV and just seeing the views, I mean, and then to be able to step on, step foot on there and just say, yeah, I'm playing for, not only am I playing it, like, okay, cool. Yeah, you can play anywhere if you pay for it, but I'm playing in a championship for 10 grand. That's pretty, yeah. that's some pretty yeah. awesome scenarios right there. Yeah. Um, but like, how the course play, like, you know, I mean, I always hear it can get hard. It can get tough with the wind coming off the the river there. Did it, did it play tough that day? We were just talking about this yesterday, (laughs) uh, Monday. We went up to, we went up to Manhattan, got the trophy back and we played golf afterwards. It was 70 degrees, sunny, not too much wind. We got blessed with the best weather we could have played in. Um, there was no wind. You looked around, you're on the Harbor and you're waiting for wind to come around and there, there was nothing. I mean, yeah. It was, it was absolutely magnificent. It was the best we were scared. We, could have for a golf round. Yeah. we were scared. I think going into it, we were like, if it's windy, like whatever. I mean, everyone's playing the same course and sure. obviously, oh, no. I mean, us going into it, we already said, we're like, we're the best players going into this, you know, this, this tournament, we got to play like it. So I think going in with that confidence, um, knowing, you know, we're going to win. There's just no other way. I think there was a guy in the locker room, like, after it. He's like, what were these guys thinking? Like, you think you were going to win when you were teen up? I was like, yeah. But, hey, we have a pretty sweet guest with us, and I'd like to get right into it. Uh, PGA Tour caddy, Corn Ferry Tour caddy, uh, kind of worked his way up through the ranks just all by networking um, and getting in with some really, really great names, which, which I'm sure we'll get into here in a little bit. Uh, but without further ado, uh, Colton Heisey, thanks for joining us, man. How's everything going with you? It's good. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's good to be back talking about golf and something along the likes of it. Uh, it's been a little while here. Yeah, for sure. I know uh, you've unfortunately been sidelined here with with all the cancellations and everything, but keeping a good attitude as we were talking before we got on the show, keeping yourself busy. Um, Yeah, let's get right into, you know, back on the golf side of things. We love talking everything golf. So kind of just take us through, you know, the first couple steps of how you first got introduced to the caddying life. Yeah, so I mean, it's been, I think I carried my first bag when I was 16. Um, there was a, uh, PGA club pro, like the national invitational that was down at Hershey country club and, uh, they needed some volunteer caddies. So I went down there, caddied that, um, didn't really caddy again until like two or three years later, I guess. Yeah. My senior year after I finished up my senior year, um, went down to Myrtle beach and caddied another PGA club pro and, then went to McDaniel College uh, down in Westminster, Maryland. After I graduated, played a year Division Three, transferred to Westchester University, stopped playing golf, and started caddying at uh, Aronimink and Applebrook. Um, they're both pretty high-end courses down there in the like, greater Philadelphia area. Uh, caddied there in the summers all through college. And one summer, my buddy and I, we got bored because it was kind of slow at the club. So we decided to go caddy the U.S. Junior Am down in uh, Colleton, well, in Hilton Head at Colleton River. And so we didn't know any of the players. We called down. They're like, yeah, we need a bunch of caddies yet. We're like, all right, perfect. We'll come down, but only if we can pick our players. So 
we did some research. I picked uh, Sahi Sagala that plays at Pepperdine. He just uh, they just finished up. Well, their season got cut short. Yeah, but they he were having. Up his, I don't mean to cut you off, but they were having quite uh, possibly yeah. the one of the most historic uh, collegiate, you know, spring tournament schedules that was uh, that was being recorded. Man, they were on fire, especially Sahi. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially. Um, I mean, they hadn't hadn't really had a full team. As far, I mean, they've had some really good players come through Pepperdine. This was the first time they kind of had a top 10 team in a long time. Um, so I know they were really looking forward to that. I talked to Scythe a bunch this spring. And just, I mean, he was really, he came off a wrist injury last year. So he missed the whole year last year and uh, <clears throat> came back and started to play some really good golf. Uh, he won the Australian Master of the Ams down there and then uh, had played really well here starting the spring and I know he was looking forward to making some noise hopefully on the national scene and uh, he was probably the front runner for the Haskins award and whatnot so I know they're bummed um, but they've all got really good head on their shoulders out there so coach Beard I'm sure took care of them so oh for sure unfortunate to see (laughs) unfortunate to see it end for them but they were ranked number one for the first time in a while so I know I know they're happy and bummed at the same time. They oh, definitely man, there were so them. many records being broken just in a short amount of time. Those kids were able to play. It was uh, it's a shame to see them get cut short because I think they really could have, uh, you know, kind of torched the whole college golf scene and set a new standard for what a team looks like if they would have been able to play the rest of the season. Yeah, no doubt. So you started at the Junior Am is kind of like where you really got into starting seeing a top-notch level of performance. Uh, other than uh, starting the caddy with him, what did the rest of, uh, you know, your gigs kind of look like from there on out? Yeah, so I caddied for size there. And then uh, the next summer, he was really good friends with Matt Wolf, and I got introduced to Matt there at the first Junior Am. Um, they were both Cali boys, so they knew each other. And Matt qualified for the USAM out at Oakland Hills. And Detroit's like seven and a half hours from me. And um, so Saez had his coach going with him from Pepperdine. And I asked him if he knew anyone else looking. And he said that Matt might be. So I reached out to Matt. Ended up caddying for Matt there. Um, and then worked a couple more AM events for Saez. And kind of got to meet some of the other guys got to know sam burns and his caddy who well his buddy nolan who caddied for him all through his am events got to know nick hardy and uh, his buddy eric really well and so just kind of networked my way met some of those guys and then when i graduated i moved down to west palm beach and was caddying in, at a country club down in jupiter and it was like four months into the season down there and i was on the 12th tee of a club loop down there and obviously like club caddying it's great i mean you can make very good money um it's all cash and fine but you're not getting to see the high level golf you don't get the competitive edge going again you don't get your juices flowing like being out on tour does Mm -hmm. and that was the whole that was the whole goal um when i graduated i kind of gave myself a little bit of a timeline to get out on tour um and if that didn't happen i had my degree and i was planning on going and getting a job in another section of the work world and so we're on the 12th tee of a club loop down there and I get a call coming from Sam Burns and I look at my phone and I'm I'm literally on the par 3 tee about to shoot a yardage and I'm like I gotta take this call guys I'm sorry (laughs) and so answer the phone and Sam's buddy Nolan's on the phone and he's like hey can you get to the Bahamas in two days 
And I'm like, uh, not really sure that's possible. Um, I don't have a passport, but like, what's going on? Like, who needs a guy? And he's like, well, Max Homa needs someone as caddy bailed, and he really needs someone. So I talked to Max. I'm like, let me see if I can somehow work out getting there in two days. I don't think that's possible. But if you need someone going forward, like I can get everything expedited and get to the next event in the Bahamas because obviously he still didn't have anyone going forward. So that's kind of what happened. I got my parents faxed me all my documents. I went to Miami on a Wednesday, got my passport expedited um, because if you have proof of travel for business, they'll expedite that for you. And I flew out Thursday morning to the Bahamas and Worked for Max in the Bahamas. We finished 18th. And then he had something lined up for the next three weeks. Well, he actually wasn't sure what starts he was going to get. But he actually stopped 25. So he moved, got something for the next week, had some, had a caddy lined up. And then I came back to work for him in Louisiana. And that was kind of been on tour since. That's grinding. That is grinding. I was that's, like, that, that is, is fantastic. That also <laughs> just straight up escalated too in a good way. Yeah. Like I feel yeah. like there was a moment there where you just didn't take a breath and we're just like, I, I did this and then I did this and it, it's like, but in the same aspect, I feel like that's like, that's how you had to feel. Cause it happened so fast and you expedited your passport and all of a sudden you're in the Bahamas and then yeah. boom, you got a consistent job. For sure. I mean, and that's kind of how it goes. It's like, I mean, most, I would say 90% of the caddies on tour don't have a story like that, but everyone has a unique story. Like most, I would say 90% of the caddies on tour didn't intentionally end up caddying on the PJ tour. <laughs> um, most of them either were a former golfer themselves, a friend of somebody who played and they got asked to come work a tournament and then they loved what they did and they just kind of fell into it. But everyone, every caddy you talk to definitely has a unique story of how they got into caddying and how it kind of stuck for them. And that's the one really cool thing about the profession. I think that's so true. And I think why like so many books have been written about caddies and like the reason they have their stories of how they've grinded. And so many of them, like you, like you did started out caddying, whether it was through high school, their college level, um, and then said, you know what, I'm going to give it a year or two and see how I can grind. And, you know, the ones that made it are the ones that showed up at these mini tour events and said, all right, you know, I'm going to wait in the parking lot to get a bag or they networked like you did and worked junior events. And, you know, I, I, I always think back to kind of when Jordan Spieth came on the scene and they all Always big, uh, they did these big parts on Greller and how he was just like a high school teacher beforehand and kind of just got um, got looped into doing some junior events for for Spieth and then he popped and then it was like well I I won this junior tournament with him I might as well stick with him and he kind of just got looped into the position. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, and especially at those junior events because one the the players at that point don't know what it's like to have someone that actually caddies. So as a caddy, you can kind of get away with being not like at the top of your game and kind of learning alongside the player. Like, I mean, I look back at even my yardage books and just my preparation and everything from like the first year on tour with Max to like the things we do now and just how how much more comfortable I am preparing for a week and getting into situations where we're close to the lead and having won a golf tournament like it's just all different. Like you look back on that and you're like, wow, I was probably not the greatest caddy when I first started, even though you think you're doing great. Yeah. You think you're checking all the boxes until you get put up, you know, in, in the big leagues as as one people would call it. And, and then you all of a sudden look back and say, Whoa, you know, the guys around me are all of a sudden at a much higher of a, of a, you know, just 
production level, proficiency level, and you kind of look at it and say, all right, well, I need, now I need to get there. I thought I was, you know, at level A and all of a sudden I'm back down to level C kind of fighting my way back up to when you realize all the work and preparation that goes into, you know, being a top-notch guy. Yeah, I mean, no doubt. And I kind of got to experience that last year and got to the PJ Tour for nine events. And you kind of just take – you have to try and take in everything that you kind of – that you get to see. Because you see a lot of caddies from the Corn Ferry Tour, unfortunately, they go up with their player at the end of the year. And then seven, eight weeks into the season, you see them back on the Corn Ferry Tour. And I mean, so you just have to kind of take take that in stride and know that that happens to guys. And you have to grasp all you can and soak up as much information as you can. And if it happens to you, just know that you don't want that to happen again. So, I mean, you just got to roll with the punches. I mean... Stop one shot at a time.